chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight, and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, and those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, 
Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. That's an awesome passage. If if you're just joining us, <clears throat> in the top right corner of the screen, you can see we understand to be the main thrust. What John has told us is the main thrust of his gospel. He He wrote what he wrote in order that we might come to believe that Jesus is the Christ and in him have life. And if there's a passage in the Bible that gets to that more clearly than this, I, I don't I don't know what it is. It's an awesome passage, displaying the awesome power of God. And as I hope to help you see, one as well that helps us to see the life, the kind of life Jesus offers to us. The opening line of this passage is fairly ambiguous in terms of its relationship to the end of chapter 8. So if you've been with us for a while or if you have your Bibles right now, you can look at the end of chapter 8. Somewhere within the temple courts in Jerusalem, Jesus announced, again, this is the end of the last chapter, that he is God. Jesus declared himself to be God. Enraged, the Jews picked up stones to stone him, believing him in claiming to be God to have committed blasphemy. And yet, because as we've seen before, and we'll see again, Jesus' time had not yet come, it says he hid himself and went out of the temple. Well, here's the thing for us as we begin chapter 9. It's not immediately obvious if the, as he passed by at the beginning of chapter 9, is connected to his leaving the temple at the end of chapter 8 or some other time. It's not immediately obvious, but it is generally agreed that the events described in chapter 9 took place some time later, later enough that those who would have stoned him had cooled off enough to put their stones down, but close enough that Jesus was still clearly in the hot seat. The short version of what happens here, which I imagine you picked up on pretty easily as Shanna read it, is truly remarkable, but fairly straightforward. Jesus healed a man who was blind, and for various reasons, it caused various responses among various people. That's the gist of what we just heard. The structure of the passage, the way that it's organized, is pretty straightforward as well. In verses 1 through 7, we read of the healing itself that Jesus did. And in 8 through 34, the bulk of the chapter, we read of the different responses that the people near this man had to his healing. And then in the end, the last few last few verses, 35 to 41, Jesus comes back on the scene and explains things, interprets things, both to the man that he had healed and to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, who had responded to that. The big idea of all of this, which again I hope to help make, hope to help you see, hope to help make plain over the next few weeks, is that Jesus gave physical sight to this man born physically blind in order to glorify God and prove that he had the power to give spiritual sight to the spiritually blind. That's the gist of all this. He healed this man physically of his inability to see as a means of demonstrating his power to open our eyes spiritually to those spiritually unable to see. The main takeaway for us is to pray earnestly for God to grant sight to those who do not yet believe in Jesus an increased clarity of vision for those of us who do. 
So before I pray and get to the text, I need to say a word about how I'm going to preach through John chapter 9. It's all one story. It's a remarkable story. It's meant to go together, but there are some things that complicate deciding how to preach through it. To just go all the way through it would be too long of a sermon. We'd be here for a long time, so I probably shouldn't do that. But the natural divisions lend themselves more to like a 20 to 25 minute sermon and then like a 50 to 55 minute sermon and then another short sermon at the end. And that doesn't work really well either, including the fact that I'm here this week and next week. And then Pastor Mike is going to preach through Haggai for three weeks. And so we're really complicating things here. So what are we going to do with this? Well, there's one more problem as well. There are two key theological ideas in here that we need to spend some time on, and each are going to get their own sermon as well. The first is Jesus' response to the disciples' question at the beginning of the chapter. In verse 3, uh, he says, It is not that the disciples are wondering who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. The idea embedded in this, which the Pharisees pick up on later, or we see in the Pharisees later, is that Somebody sinned explicitly in in order for this man to be in blindness. And Jesus' response is remarkable. He says, neither. It wasn't this man's sin or his parents. He's not blind because someone sinned. He's blind that the works of God might be displayed in him right now. What does that mean? There's a lot there, and we need to unpack that. And then there's another one at the end as Jesus explains to the Pharisees the nature of their blindness. That's That needs to be treated separately as well. So none of that really breaks up all that well for a sermon in two weeks with a three-week gap and then after that. But here's what I'm going to do. It's the best I could come up with. Pray that the Spirit would be pleased to use this uh, structure, sermon structure, uh, to help us get all that we can out of this. So I'm going to preach on the healing itself, verses 1 through 7, and the man who was healed, the blind man who could now see his response to this. We're going to trace his response through that whole middle section this week. Next week, I'm going to help us take a look at each of the three remaining responses, and I'll tell you more what I mean about that in a little bit. And then Jesus' interpretation. Then Mike's going to preach through Haggai for three weeks, and then I'm going to come back to those big theological rocks that we find at the beginning and end of chapter 9. So with that, that's just kind of giving you an idea of where we're going and why, and inviting you to join with me and praying that God would be pleased to use that. Let's pray. God, thank you for this text. Thank you that, above all, it is a story of Jesus who is the Christ, such that all who believe in him will never perish but have eternal life. I pray that the end result of all of our time in John and every passage within it, including this one, would be that you would draw us to trusting in Jesus. And so if there are some this morning who do not and have not trusted in Jesus, that today would be the day, perhaps through this text, through the promises that are embedded in this, through the miraculous healing of Jesus, of this man and the man's response to it, I pray that you would draw draw people to yourself. And for those of us who have already placed our hope in you. I pray that we would grow in clarity of who you are and what you're doing and what that means for us, that we would be more inclined to follow you in more places and in more ways. I pray that we would be more eager to put aside our sins and 
the ways in which we're seeking to make sense of the world through our own wisdom rather than yours and live for our own glory rather than yours. And so I pray that you would make more plain to us whose hope is in Jesus what it means to live as you intend, to live in light of the fact that we receive Jesus as the Christ and the eternal life that he brings. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for this story. Thank you for how it helps us shine a light on our souls in new ways. Seek to surrender them more fully to you, our King. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, with some unknown amount of time having passed between the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9, in chapter 9 we pick up with Jesus and his disciples going for a walk. Uh, They're taking a walk, and, and as they do, they came across a man who was blind. By itself, there isn't anything really notable about that. As we've made our way through John's Gospel, and certainly if you've spent time in the other Gospels, you've seen Jesus encounter many people who were sick and suffering. While the Gospel writers make clear that Jesus had compassion on the poor, the poor of body and the poor of spirit, it is also clear that he did not address every or even the majority of the people who he met that were suffering. Before we consider what it was that caused Jesus to stop then for this particular man and address him and heal him when he'd passed by so many others, I'd like to first point out the fact that we're told virtually nothing about this man. We're told virtually nothing about him in this passage. We don't know his name. We don't know his background or almost anything else to fill in his life story. Further, this is the only time that he appears in the Bible. I think one of the main points of that is there's nothing in this man in and of himself that deserved to be healed. There's nothing about this particular man that warranted Jesus' attention in him and of him. It certainly wasn't that he was the most faithful person around or or anything like that. We we know nothing about him. So directly, all we know of him is that he was born blind from birth. That's what we're told. Indirectly, we know a few more things. We know that he was at least 13 years old. That was um, the time it meant to be of age for Jews at that time. And we also know that he was probably older than 13, though, because his parents said that He was able to speak for himself, and the idea behind that is to be a good witness. We know indirectly that his family was poor. Uh, We're told in verse 8 that that he was a beggar. He was known as a beggar in town. And, And also indirectly, we know that he was a Jew, for his parents feared being put out of the synagogue, we see in verse 22. But that's about it. Well, in addition to the fact that it was nothing in the man that caused Jesus to stop, The fact that we know so little about him is certainly intentional. As awesome as it is that he was made able to see, and it is awesome, he isn't the point of the story. Jesus' power to heal the eyes of the body and soul is the point. Jesus is the point in his power to heal. And the man's obscurity helps us to see that most clearly. From there, in these first seven verses, I want to point out four things to you that I think are critical to understanding the the passage. First, John makes special mention of the fact that he was born blind from birth. It doesn't tell us how they knew that. It just tells us that that was the case. As he passed by, verse 1 said, he saw a man blind from birth. 
That combined with the fact that he was of age means that nobody could reasonably accuse him of pretending to be blind or of this being some type of deceitful conspiracy that Jesus and this man had cooked up. The man certainly was known by many in the town, even as we see in the next paragraph, and likely had more than two decades of countless wit- and, and countless witnesses to his blindness. Even as some wondered how this could possibly be, they were forced quickly to accept the simple facts that he had been blind, and after an encounter with this man named Jesus, he could see. That's the first thing to see. Second, while John makes it clear that this is no chance meeting, he also makes it clear that there was a, it was a question from the disciples that prompted Jesus to stop and address the man. As they were passing by, the disciples asked at the end of verse 1, or at, I'm sorry, in verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There's a lot there, and there's a lot more in Jesus' reply. Jesus said it into verse 3. Jesus answered, it was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night night is coming when no one can work. But as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. There's a lot in there. There's so much, again, that I'm going to spend an entire sermon on that in a few weeks. For now, I simply want to draw your attention to a few things about that. The disciples, number one, as I said earlier, the disciples assumed that the blindness was the direct results of the sin of either the man or his parents. And again, the Pharisees, if you look at verse 34, they assumed that as well. I want you to recognize that. They assumed that. That Jesus corrected them is something that we need to see as well. He, he, he told them it's not that. Letting them know that God's glory, not sin, was the ultimately, was ultimately underneath his blindness. And third, I want you to notice from that as well that the healing was an important part of Jesus' earthly ministry. The manner, it was an important part of the manner in which he would reveal himself as Christ. Again, there's a lot to unpack and we'll get to it in a bit. The third specific thing to note from these few verses is the manner of Jesus' healing. He certainly could have healed with a mere word or even with a simple unspoken thought. Instead, however, he chose to do something a bit more unusual. He chose to do so with spit, in dirt, in a pool washing. Look at verse 6. Having said these things to his disciples, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. There's a great deal of symbolism in these words of Jesus The number of possible symbolic interpretations I read this week is staggering. They ranged from magic, that this was Jesus' attempt to perform magic, which of course is ridiculous, to this is a precursor to baptism of people in Jesus' name, which is interesting, to my personal favorite, was this was symbolic of an overturning of the entire social and religious order. Perhaps some of some of those things is in this, but the two that seem most important and most clear to me, the two ways in which the manner in which Jesus healed symbolize something greater. First, this is 
This is a big deal. That Jesus took two ordinary things, or took ordinary things, three ordinary things, spit, dirt, and water, to perform an entirely extraordinary work. What's more, two of the ordinary things that Jesus used, spit and dirt, were far more associated with uncleanliness than any normal instruments of anointing, which is what verse 6 says that Jesus did with them. Just as when Jesus made a leper clean by touching him rather than becoming leprous himself, here Jesus healed through means and in ways that defiled reason and custom. Don't, don't miss that, Grace. Second, the connection between the pool of Siloam and Jesus can't be missed either. This is important. It was from that pool that the water, again, if you were here through chapter 7, you know that we're just coming out of the Feast of Booths in chapter 9. 7 and 8 describe Jesus and his ministry at the Feast of Booths. And an important part of that was a water purification ritual, which is why Jesus talked about himself as living water. Well, it's important because it was the pool. This pool of Siloam was the pool that the water for the purification ritual was drawn during the Feast of Booths. In grace, it was the sent one, which Jesus said in verse 4. He was the sent one. It was the sent one who sent the man to the pool of scent. Combined, those things help us to see that it was not any kind of magical power in the water or the saliva or the dirt but the power of God working through Jesus that gave sight to the blind. Finally, fourth, as will become clear at the end of the chapter, and this is the most important one, the healing of the man's physical blindness was directly tied to Jesus' mission on earth, which was to bring spiritual sight to the spiritually blind. We're going to spend a whole week on that in several weeks. The light of the world, Grace, and this is the key for this morning, The light of the world came to the world to enable the world to come out of darkness and into the light, which is him. And so the result of all of this was that the man went, verse 6, and washed and came back seeing. Jesus miraculously gave him sight for the first time in his life, even as he was soon, even as Jesus would soon give man, this man spiritual sight for the first time as well. We see that in verse 38 later. It's important to note that the man was healed after leaving Jesus' presence. He never saw Jesus because he wasn't healed until he had left him. He saw him later in verse 35, but prior to receiving a sight, he had never seen Jesus. Well, in this story, remember, Grace, Jesus can still heal. He is no less able today than he was then. You cannot be too sick for too little or too much time for him to heal. If you pray, he will hear you, and he is able. And yet we must also remember, this was fairly unique, that Jesus came up to this particular man. Countless many had prayed around Jesus. And so it's also important for us to remember that while he is always able, for his good, sovereign purposes, he does not always choose to do so. And here's our great promise, Grace, especially if you are suffering or if you know someone who is, hear this. Our great promise is that when he does and when he doesn't alike, it is for God's greatest glory and the greatest good of all who love him, even those whom God chooses to wait until heaven to finally and fully heal. And so we go to him. We go to him in faith. We go to him in prayer. He is the God who heals. And all of that leads us to wonder what kind of response 
this would produce. This is a remarkable thing. What would this do? This man and then the people around him. How would the news of this healing travel and what would happen as it did? We don't have to wait long to find out. Predictably, this healing sent immediate and significant shockwaves throughout the town. And once again, John goes into detail about how this landed on several specific groups and people. The man himself, the man's neighbors, the man's parents, and the Jewish leaders. Again, this morning, we'll just look at the man himself and how he responded. I want you to consider something, though, before we do. All four groups were descendants of Abraham. They were all Jews. They were all members of the covenant people of God. They claimed to believe in God as God, to follow his law, and to be worshipers of him. And so let me ask you this question. What would a God-honoring response have looked like? What should it have looked like? What ought it to have looked like in each of these people or groups of people? If this man were to have fully and truly responded to this in a manner pleasing to God, what would he have done? How about his parents? How about his neighbors? And How about the Jewish leaders? For the man, certainly the most God-honoring response would have been to have been overwhelmed with gratitude and thankfulness and worship, which we'll see it eventually leads to. He ought to have left everything. It's curious to me that he didn't do this, but he ought to have left everything to find Jesus. Verse 11 tells us that he knew Jesus' name. He, he hadn't seen him yet, but it tells us that he knew his name. That he was, it was the man called Jesus who had healed him. He ought to have left everything to find Jesus in order that he might follow him for the rest of his life. And along the way, as he was trying to find Jesus, he ought to have boldly told everyone he met about the power of God manifest in this man of God. Well, about the man's neighbors and parents, the first to have witnessed his new miraculous ability to see, and the ones most deeply affected by his lifetime of blindness. They ought to have quickly and eagerly sought an explanation from him. How is it that you are able to see? And as he explained it to them, they ought to have gone with him to find Jesus, spoken to Jesus, investigated the man's claims to find out if it was true that it was Jesus who did it. And as they did, they ought to have joined him as well in worship and obedience, following him with all that they had. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the ones we've seen so many times get in the way of Jesus' ministry and push back and reject him, they ought to have recognized the unique hand of God on Jesus, his teaching and his power. Jesus said repeatedly that to know God was to know him, and to know him was to know God. They ought to have recognized that. They ought to have humbled themselves, holding more firmly to the man of God than their own interpretations of what the man of God ought to have looked like and sounded like and done. And therein they ought to have rejoiced that their long-awaited Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, that they had been promised and claimed to want to come among them, had finally come, demonstrating his power through signs and wonders. And they too then ought to have followed him with all that they had. That's what each of these people or groups should have done. But that, again, only leaves us wondering what they actually did. 
And as we're about to see, it was a pretty mixed bag. Let's consider the response of the man. How would the person most directly affected by Jesus' miracle respond to the miracle? John tells us quite a bit. One of the most significant aspects of his response is found right away in verse 7. The man had certainly heard of Jesus. We're told that in the text. And he'd most certainly also then have heard of the controversy surrounding Jesus. He'd certainly heard of the anger of the Jewish leaders and the various explanations of who he was offered by the crowds, his neighbors, who'd seen and heard him. On top of that, presumably, the man had some sense of what Jesus had done to him. He he tells us this. I mean, exactly how he knew. Heard him spit, perhaps, and assumed it was dirt he was mixing it with and mud that he had put on his eyes. He, He tells everybody what Jesus did, as strange as it was. So therefore, when Jesus commanded him, I don't know if you noticed this, but Jesus' command to him does not include a promise to be, that he'll be healed by this. He doesn't tell them, tell this man, if you do this, you will be able to see. So when Jesus commanded him without explanation to go and wash in the pool, the man's response is notable. Without question, he simply did what Jesus told him to. Was it faith? Was it desperation? Was it something else entirely? We're not yet sure of his motives, but we are sure of his response. Simply, plainly, verse 7 tells us, so he went and washed. There's something truly profound in the simplicity of the man's obedience, which will continue on. We'll notice that in the rest of the ways he responds as well. There's something truly profound in the simplicity of his obedience and truly profound in the simplicity of the result. 7 ends by saying, very simply, very unceremoniously, And he came back seeing. That was it. He listened to Jesus and took him at his word to go and wash that that was right. And he came back seeing. Grace, we need to learn this lesson. (laughs) As simple as it is, we need to learn it. Simple trust in Jesus. Simple trust in Jesus is the path to fullness of life, to joy and eternal blessing. It is right and good for us to seek understanding. God made us to do that. We're meant to love God with all of our minds but we're called to do so in childlike faith, just like this. There are few clearer pictures of what it looks like to have the faith of a child that Jesus commands. There are few clearer pictures of what that looks like in an adult than we see in this man's response. Well, from there, the man's responses are largely uh, in, his responses to the miracle are largely in response to others questioning him about the miracle, their interrogations and wonderings. In that vein, the next time the man has a chance to to respond to this is in verse 9. There he found himself, understandably, being questioned by his neighbors, who desperately wanted to make sense of this. Never having seen or even heard of anything like this, we're told in verse 32, they ran through several possible explanations in their mind. What are we to make of this? initially, chief among their possible explanations seems to have been to question whether the man standing in front of them who could see was the same man that had been a blind beggar among them for decades. Is this really him? I, I don't even know how this could possibly be. Is this the same guy? Unashamed and emphatic, the text tells us that he kept saying, I am the man. I am the man. It's me. This is me. Far from trying to distance himself from Jesus, which so many had done. 
and his miraculous healing, the man was unrelenting, insistent, I'm he. Seemingly convinced that it was, in fact, the same man, the the neighbors turned their question to another understandable direction. How did this happen? Okay, you're him. You couldn't see. We, We saw you begging. We maybe gave you some money. We felt sad for you for so many years. It's you, but what happened? How did this work? To that end, when questioned by his neighbors, he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and washed. Wash. So I went and washed, and now I can see. We see basically the same thing in his response to the Pharisees' initial questioning. He said to them, He put mud in my eyes and washed, and now I see. And even as the Pharisees got weirder and more aggressive towards him, when they pressed them again in verse 25, he, he answered, one thing I, I know, I don't know some of these things you're asking, but one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. He didn't exaggerate. He didn't waver. He didn't apologize. Without any of those things, the man matter-of-factly told all who questioned him all that he knew. He never claimed more than the basic facts. He He knew that the man was called Jesus who had healed him and the basics evidently of what Jesus did with the spit and the mud and the command to wash. But despite being pressed repeatedly and even increasingly aggressively, he made no claim to have any meaningful understanding of how Jesus healed him or why. In verse 17, we see that he responded to the Pharisees. They're on the scene now. The neighbors seem to have taken him to the Pharisees. And so now they start grilling him increasingly hostile interrogation. He did offer a guess as to who Jesus was or what it was about him that allowed him to heal, presumably from having heard a lifetime of stories of God's miraculous work through the prophets. That was his best guess. He said, he's a prophet. First he said, who who do you think this guy is? He's a prophet. Again, it would have been well known among all the Jews at this point that the Pharisees would not tolerate any kind of acceptance of Jesus as a man of God. The text tells us that. They'd already decided that to receive him like this is to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, the man's lack of intimidation and willingness to offer straightforward answers and explanations is genuinely praiseworthy. Might we learn from him in this as well, Grace? Consider this. Might we be so bold and so clear when our unbelieving coworkers or family or friends or neighbors ask about our faith, when they ask about our understanding of where the world came from or how it is ordered or what it is for, when they ask us questions about reality and our understanding of it, may we be so bold. As the world grows in confusion and hostility toward the truth, may we learn from this man what it looks like to give clear and courageous and unapologetic answers to the questions we encounter. Well, from there, things took a bit of a turn. Becoming tired of the Pharisees' antics as they built and built and built, becoming seemingly annoyed by their obvious unwillingness to even consider the obvious. In verse 7, we see the guy took on some snark, some holy snark going on here, I think. You got to be a little more careful of imitating that. But as the Pharisees continued to press on him, he pressed back. 
They were desperate. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the ones who saw themselves as guides to the blind, ironically. They were desperate to come up with some way to explain away the increasingly obvious fact that Jesus healed this man. They kept asking him. They kept asking him the same questions. They kept coming after him. This time, though, he replied, instead of with straightforward facts, he said to them, I've told you already. I answered you this, this question and these series of questions, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want me to tell you again? Do you too want to become his disciples? And that, the man moved from simple, straightforward, and courageous answers to a tone of ridicule. And in that, he willingly moved the bullseye from Jesus back to his own. It's hard not to see in this passage that the man quickly gained clarity. Quickly gained clarity from and was emboldened by the ridiculousness of these leaders. As it became increasingly obvious that they weren't in the least bit interested in thinking rationally or reasonably about any of this, that they'd already made up their minds and were unwilling to consider anything other than what they already believed, no matter what was put in front of them. The man grew less tolerant with their nonsense and posturing. Therefore, when they were unable to offer any legitimate alternative explanation for his healing and Jesus' power to bring it about, look at verse 30. The man concluded, why, this is an amazing thing. (laughs) Here you are, self-proclaimed shepherds of this people, guides to the blind. What an amazing thing this is. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God will not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. We've never even heard of this. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So how do we characterize the man's response to his healing and to the interrogations that followed? Very simply, it's clear from the beginning that he really didn't know what to think about all of this. But it's also clear that the poor blind beggar was willing to acknowledge what the learned, the wealthy, the religious leaders, the shepherd leaders of Israel would not. That Jesus, filled with the power of God, caused him who had been blind to be able to see. We'll see a bit more of his response in the final section next week where Jesus re-enters the scene. But for the most part, he simply comes across as one thankful to be able to see. Convinced that Jesus is some kind of man of God, confused as to why everyone is making this more complicated than it needs to be, and ultimately annoyed by the Pharisees' obstinacy. And so as we consider, as we continue next week to consider the other responses of those nearest to this man, Please, Grace, ask God to help you rightly consider your own response to the person and power and call of Jesus on your life. Learn from the various responses we see in this passage to find areas in your life marked by genuine belief, genuine faith, and those areas of your life marked by anything else. Grace, our lives are ultimately not marked by how much money we make or have or our education, or our family line, or our earthly relationships, or our athletic prowess, or our physical appearance, but by our response to Jesus. At the end of all things, 
the thing that you will be measured by, judged by, is your response to Jesus. It is a great gift of God, therefore, for God to give us tools like this chapter to help us see what our responses are and to evaluate them. Even more, though, even more, please consider the simple fact that Jesus' power to heal those who have physical ailments comes from the same place, his divine nature, oneness with the Father and the Spirit, as his power to heal us from sin's spiritual blindness and death. In in fact, what we have here is another remarkable picture of what we see in Matthew 9 when Jesus healed another man, a paralytic from birth. There it says, Jesus says, that you may know that the Son of Man, that's him, that's Jesus, that you know that I, that you may know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. That our passage in John is another example of this. will become clearer next week as we make our way through the rest of the chapter. But for now, and in conclusion, let's marvel at this at this power of the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, to heal, to heal our bodies. And let's ask him for that, to heal us and those we love. And let us marvel even more at the power of this man, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, to heal the soul and ask him for that all the more.